0: So, Elish, nice to have you on my mate.
1: Thank you, Stevie. Thank you for having me.
0: Is it working?
2: (laughs) Where am I going crazy? I swear, like some police radio thing or something. (laughs) Shut up. Is
0: that because we've been watching Stranger Things? Oh, that was yeah. so... Oh, so have I. Have actually? Man, we've I'm just gone in to see them. I'm having such bad nightmares. Oh, same. I'm <laughs> just like, what's going on? What is going on in my nighttime life now? Okay, the police have gone. Oh. That's how, that was
2: just okay. like, absolutely...
0: But it sounds good though, yeah? It sounds great. Okay, right. I don't know where I'm talking to now. I think I'm talking to that welcome to the mentality podcast we're recording at the incredible wheatwood hall hotel podcast studio this is a podcast that goes way beyond stigma We talk about men's mental health and mindset. We encourage the type of conversation that will open you up to another way to live life, another way to see yourself and the world around you. If you are ready for that, you're in the right place. I'm Stevie Ward and I'm an ex- professional rugby league player and captain and now i guess i'm a bit of a podcaster a speaker actor writer entrepreneur i'm still working all that out but our mentality we help men take control of their mindset by teaching them to find purpose resilience and what i believe is the new success inner peace sounds good if you are that guy who is waking up to the fact that they need to do something different in life and the same old habits aren't working for you might be time to step up if you want to start your journey with us you can go to mentality.co.uk forward slash coaching to join the best team you have ever seen Okay, so we've got Elish on the podcast. How are you doing, my mate? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to have you on. We met Elish about three months ago. Me and Natalie had checked in to an Airbnb in New York, not really knowing what was going on, not knowing what the hell we were doing in New York. We checked into an Airbnb. It wasn't clean. It was a disgrace. It looked like there was some weird sort of white powders still on a glass table when we checked in. So we thought, we're not staying here. It's flipping disgusting. We got on hotels tonight and we booked a hotel in the middle of Times Square. And we wouldn't usually do that. We hate Times Square because we're native New Yorkers. But we wouldn't usually do that. We got a deal. We went to Times Square, migraine city, the chaos was all around us. We met a friend called Jax who is a trainer of the High Flyers in New York City, as this man is, and uh, Elish came in and we were introduced by a mutual friend and Elish managed to bring some instruments in, which I'd seen in monasteries on the TV, mostly on Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, near the intro, there's some of those intro, uh, instruments on there, and then he managed to take us from the madness to the monastery with breath work, with blowing into balloons, with meditation, and with some real, honest, raw chats, which is my, he in, knew in you, in you me, he knew what to go for, he knew to go for the honest and raw chats, because that's exactly what we do, and we love at mentality. So, Elish, thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's where we met, and I've said to Elish, ever since we met, Elish, I'd love to have you on a podcast, because... What you embody and your actions in the world are exactly what, you know, we sort of try and get out there with mentality, mate. It really is. He's, he's the peaceful warrior. He is the peaceful warrior. Um, so, Elish, apart from my intro of of our connection and those two hours in in the madness of, of Times Square, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Could you tell us about your upbringing, you know, what was the ideals, what were the, the scenarios in your upbringing, um, your background, and, and yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that intro. It was riveting. Yes. I forgot you were talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Who is this guy? Yeah, like, wow, he sounds great.
1: <laughs> well, I grew up about an hour away from here, actually. So I grew up in New Jersey in uh, in a little town called Summit, New Jersey. I moved around a little bit in the area, but, yeah, I was born... There to my wonderful parents, who um, and this is an important detail, were refugees from the Vietnam War. So, as you can imagine, that starts to mark my childhood. Yeah. So my parents were fairly traditional Vietnamese people. So my upbringing was uh, it was in many ways very challenging. Very challenging. Two completely different cultures, and no skills to be able to manage them. Yeah. I mean, my childhood was normally, I have a lot to say about it. Normally I have a lot to say about it, but it's, it was pretty intense. It was, it was pretty intense. We, I grew up very poor. My parents were struggled a lot financially when I was growing up. Um, so we started out living in section eight housing and relatively poor areas. And, uh, my father eventually my problem, found his way going back to school.
0: Oh, I don't
2: no. I what this is. I'm so sorry. That's
1: was so strange.
0: A, there was a really loud siren. Going. Could you still hear him? No, no it's not
2: the siren. It's, it's like an actual radio actual, frequency. It's like, yeah. radio, we we're going to yeah, catch some it.
0: zombies from straight. Let's <laughs> sure, listen.
2: It, it only comes up at random times. I'm so sorry. You were just talking about that, it. All good. Is it through
0: there? Can you hear it? No. I'm oh. just like we like, never heard that before. It's not that, is it? No, it. No, like it's definitely. It's like, like <laughs> yeah, we've
2: got a, da, 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 da. Oh, sorry about that. But I'm like, I don't know if it's coming through these or if it's like going to be on the recording.
1: Yeah.
2: It's the most random because this isn't like a. It's not like a
0: it's picking up radio frequency. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on I mean it's a good job you've listened to it because
2: but maybe it's not even gonna be maybe that's not even gonna be on the recording
1: Fillings in your teeth no. am I it, is it me
2: <laughs> this is so bizarre <laughs> we might just have to say like on the podcast guys like we we're you just picking up some <laughs> police <laughs> interference some external mic picking up some clear audio from some radio or TV frequency. Cool. Oh my god, let's go fight
0: Christ! <laughs> <laughs> we can postpone this. We're gonna do, yeah, <laughs> so what are we going to do? The city needs us. So, what do we do then? Does it say what you do if you get it? Just stop.
2: But we never had that before, but I guess always when you've recorded been, podcasts, the not been, police everywhere. NYPD. Yeah, like,
0: like NYPD.
2: No, it's in... Was it Aaron? Do you watch Brooklyn Nine Nine? Of
0: course, <laughs> I love it. <laughs>
2: love
1: that show. Raymond Holt's my favorite. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. <clears throat> no, let's just fucking do it and just.
2: Well, if not, we can, we can use, use that The sound.
0: Use
2: that audio when it comes on. Do you wanna? If,
0: do you want If I hear there's a murder on the r-
1: loose, I'll let you know. Yeah. I can go. <laughs> Sweet.
0: Yeah. let <laughs> open the window. I brought my cape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So I'll read. I'll just redo that question okay. and then. So Elish, apart from my wacky introduction to you, what was your upbringing? What was your childhood? So
1: I grew up the son of two Vietnamese refugees, refugees from the Vietnam War. I grew up about an hour away in Summit, New Jersey, in central Jersey, in that area. I could go into so much detail about it. It's funny because... Do it. Oh my God. (laughs) Well... Started on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess the relevant part to our conversations is that my my childhood was for me really difficult because you know my parents had really really hard lives. My mom especially, like horrifically difficult lives, and um, so I was a child who inherited a lot of that difficulty. Difficulty with knowing who you are, with knowing anything other than how to survive. So I grew up in a household to parents whose primary occupation was survival. My dad left Vietnam on the day the war ended. His family followed a bunch of American soldiers to a fishing boat. and they took them on the boat and took like a two week boat ride over to Guam. So that's the kind of situation my, my dad was in. So my parents grew up with a lot of hardships. So they're very, very strict, very adamant about financial security, making sure you're working really hard. Like they had to fight their way just to kind of survive in America they came to america without knowing any english so for them that's all they knew was how to survive and just how to get by so that was a lot of my childhood it was i had to i had to do really well in school i had to be really good at everything i was constantly being compared to my cousins to people around me my parents placed extraordinarily high expectations on me and my sister too so it was tough cuz Unlucky for my parents, they raised a child who did not fit the traditional mold
0: mm.
1: that uh, American society was geared towards. I did not do that well in school. Absolutely hated rules. Had, like, I, I, was I, you know my, my parents, who just wanted so badly to just be secure and safe and not have to worry about having their lives ripped away again, had a child who was in, in many ways very, very rebellious. <laughs> very, very rebellious. And I think what that was kind of a representation of the struggle that I had internally, like growing up at home with these expectations in a society that had no understanding of it. Like I grew up, I was like me and my sister, were like two of like maybe five Asian people in my school, like everyone else being white and of you know rather affluent background for the most part. So I had a really hard time fitting in, finding my niche, my, my space you know so i found a lot of my i found a lot of myself and my ability actually in sport um so I, did, I was not an academic kid i learned in, instead of actually learning how to study and practice really hard i immediately how do i lie my way through school how do i fake everything yeah. so that i don't have to do this treacherous thing called reading and math um so you know i i grew up as a, a, a pretty Pretty good athlete, I would say. Started up playing baseball and then found my found my way to tennis, which was I guess where my first real solid identity started to form. Um, I poured everything into sport and competition, whether it was physical sport or esports, because I also played a lot of video games.
0: Is that where you got most of your joy and freedom from then when you played sport? Like can you remember many other occasions when you were younger?
1: Did I get my freedom playing sport? No, I think in sport I got the chance to feel like I was better than people.
0: Yeah, so maybe
1: free from my own deeper sense of inadequacy. Because, you know, if you looked at my training regimen when I was playing tennis, which is my only real serious sport, actually, no, it's actually the remnants of it in every sport I did. Because my dad was my dad only knows how to work really hard. He's like, you work really hard and you be the best. My, dad, my dad's the kind of person who came from absolutely nothing in Vietnam, playing soccer in the streets with their combined socks, yeah. playing barefoot, and then becoming one of the most successful network engineers in the world. Right. He's, my dad's like, you mean just become the best? like Just be good at everything. Just do it. Just, just, do, it. I, just do it. You got to work really hard, just do it. So like the way my dad trained me growing up, once he started to see, I got really I was getting really good. I was like, okay, minimum four hours a day during the week after school. Weekends, you're on the court all day. We're talking like eight hour days, ten hour days sometimes. So there was no freedom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. There yeah. was
1: no freedom, but I had the opportunity to be someone, which was I think why it was so important to me.
0: That's big in it when you're a youngster to like have that vision of becoming something you know yeah. especially
1: because i had such big shoes to fill mm. to myself i was always you know on the surface i i felt like i was kind of like a big dog at whatever i was doing but inside i was very horribly insecure mm. so i needed to be someone because my parents needed me to be someone
0: what do you think the insecurity was from
1: Oh man, I'm, isn't I know that the question? We're
0: going into, th- we're going into, cause I, 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 I've asked it about myself, you know, and, and it is something that I'm doing a podcast series with the mentality counselor and you know, there's, there's a possibility to go really deep and look into it, it? and it goes so deep, my goodness. But I'm like, is anyone free from it? I'm like, is it, is it just a, everyone's going to have some sort of insecurities and, and do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it, it's like yeah, just well, different tastes or variations and.
1: I think if there's a possibility of being insecure, there's a possibility of being free from insecurity, to be perfectly secure. It just has to be the case. Whether or not we realize it doesn't change the fact that it has to be the case. I mean, the, the relative world is one of polarity, so if there is insecurity, there has to be security. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Where does it come from? Where does the insecurity come from for me? Immediately, I think about my mom's upbringing. My mom... Never knew her father. Her family was split up when she was really young. Her mom wasn't in for the picture for a lot of her younger life. My mom started working when she was five. She was scrubbing floors and cleaning houses to get two meals a day and a little bit of money to bring home to her family. She had a bunch of siblings, and they all didn't live under the same house. They got split up because they just couldn't be, you know, they had to have other families raise them because my my mom's mom couldn't afford it. And then she just eventually kind of split and did her own thing. So I think the insecurity comes from, you know, is represented in that. My mom never had security from the get-go. She never knew a father. She never knew a normal family. She never knew what it was like to have food on the table that she didn't have to work for. She only ever knew what it was like to have immense responsibility and no room for error. So my mom struggled, and she had a lot of horrible things happen to her. So I can only imagine. I mean, I don't even need to imagine. I know that's where a lot of it comes from. I my mom had to fight really, really, really hard just to survive. And to this day, my mom is the kind of person that still lives that reality. And to the outside world, she is the most loving and giving person ever. And she is but the, the darker side of that, it's, it's a necessity for her. It's her identity. It's the only way she ever knew how to be someone. Only way she giving. knew. Yeah. Only, only value she had growing up was the, to be the provider, the problem solver. So if we try to answer the question from, I guess, a spiritual bent, something a little bit more beyond personhood, it's a disconnection from who you are not knowing the truth of who you are and how can you know who you are if you came out of the womb and already had labels and roles placed upon you right you have to do this and do that and any time that you have which is very little you all kind of feel bad for taking because like oh that means i could be doing more to take care of the people that i have to take care of yeah my dad's my dad was very much the same thing. So you know, I you know, I don't see myself as anyone separate from my parents or anyone before me. So when I you ask me the question, where does the insecurity come from? The tip of the iceberg is my parents' lives, and then the rest of it is everyone else's life before them, is where they
0: came from. It's just like mapped on those tactics and grooves, I guess, in in how they live their life and how they've learned it and repeated it and behaved it again and again has been mapped onto onto you
1: yeah that's the reality i came into if everyone has their own model and map of reality Mm. the child is born in the intersection between their parents or their developmental figures in society and everything like that so that was that was the the track that i was born onto
0: yeah i want to dive into that but i think it's going to come a bit later um the tennis then so you you didn't feel free playing tennis you felt there were
1: times I couldn't okay so I don't want to paint too black and white of a picture but there you know tennis was a was a time where I could feel really good feel really accomplished so though from one perspective there was no freedom there were times when the conditions were right when when I could feel as if I was really you know I was really limitless I can. Oh, man, I, can, I have memories right now just kind of flashing through my mind of times on the court where, where when I was in my element, like the thing that I was really well known for was my feet and then my surf. So when I was on and I was just there just usually by myself with a hopper of balls and my dad would be like, hey, don't come home for two hours. Right? Don't even try to come home before that. And then stay longer if you can i would just have a cu- bunch of hoppers of balls hitting serves and then when i was on fire you know, it was that was i guess you could say was my big taste of freedom it wasn't even competition i was terrible in competition yeah like my coaches would tell me that they would get calls from all the college coaches asking if i'm still a head case yeah because <laughs> i was like the best practice player one of the best practice players from from the group of people that i played with but as soon as you put me on a court with an umpire in the chair, it was like, I had never played tennis before.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. It's like all of a sudden the court got really small and the ball got really small, right? But yeah, there were, there were times where I really did feel free and accomplished.
0: And why do you think when the umpire came about, you, you felt smaller? Why, why do you think that is? Anyone of authority that was there to judge me. Okay.
1: Right. Like my parents, my dad got banned from my tennis tournaments by my mom because if I made a mistake.
0: Staring down at you. Yeah, he would just
1: look at me. <laughs> You'd be like, I could just like feel, oh, what's that feeling? Oh, yeah. that's
0: looking at me. <sighs> <Something on> me.
1: <laughs> My dad would look at me and then he would just nod his head. Right? So anything that would remind me that there was a chance that I could fail.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anything that would remind me that there was a chance of losing. I think that got tied up a lot with feeling alone. Being kind of forced to face the fact that I'm not good enough at something. So when those stakes were on when those stakes were on the table, it was very hard for me to perform. Very hard for me to perform. I I would choke like crazy all yeah. the time. I would be doing really well, like up, you know, six,
0: two, five, one, and still somehow loose. Well, tennis is sure like clear in terms of performing well and not performing well you know like in rugby you can sort of merge into a team performance and other people can drop the ball if you like but in tennis literally it's just you the points are so clear you know Faults. there's a word fault (laughs) 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 embedded in the game Yeah. Um, and I can see how playing tennis you can you can almost get in your own head like Nick Kyrgios, he, he doesn't get in his own head. He just puts it out of there, doesn't he? and he just show, shows everyone how he's feeling, what he's doing. But I can see in tennis how you can confidence can just falter and diminish over two or three sort of points.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, for me, for for who I was, that was a, it was a very very hard situation to be in.
0: Yeah, and limitless. You said you felt limitless at times when the pressure was off, when people weren't watching how did that feel?
1: Oh, you feel like Superman. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you can almost feel that there's a future for you.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Right. Cause for me, it was like, that's going to be my ticket into the future. I wasn't good at school. You know, my parents wanted to be someone in finance as some kind of high level business person, a doctor, a lawyer, anything like that, anything like that. I knew I wasn't going to make it doing but sport was the one thing I knew I was, I was the best athlete in my entire family, right? And my dad was the best athlete amongst his siblings. So it was like, oh, not only was I really good at that, this is the only way I can keep up with my dad.
0: Mm. You feel a lot of pressure to keep up to your dad's sprint into hard work and, and achievement. There's a part of me that is, that does
1: feel that. You know, as my dad is also my absolute hero. Mm-hmm. But these days, as I've come to know myself, I've come to do so much work over the last, you know, almost 10 years. When I'm in my element, when I'm my most clear, there is no competition. Right? I am who I am and I am at peace and very deeply fulfilled by the fact that I'm not trying to win anything. I just I am here to be a good person. To help people to find happiness and to share it with them and Mm -hmm. that's it Mm -hmm. so the competitive aspect needing to keep up with my dad's achievements a part of me also knows i'm i'm i am both there and beyond it yeah because in some sense because of my father i've been able to kind of continue on Mm. and ask the deeper questions of who i am that's true to not have to ask you know i don't have to worry about survival because of my parents yes so now I can, you know, in my mind, go to the next level and ask, who is it that was surviving? Who is it that is achieving something?
0: And what does that mean? So that journey then through tennis, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you progressed from that point? You obviously competed in tennis, weightlifting as well, and a few injuries. In
1: powerlifting and strongman? Yeah, so I played tennis, I had hopes of, of playing on the ITF Pro Tour. So I did join the ITF Pro Tour and was planning to play some futures and satellites tournaments. And then when I was 18, went snowboarding for the first time mm. and broke my wrist. Yeah. And it never healed. So my career was done.
0: How did that feel?
1: I actually got asked that really recently, yeah. right? And I think the honest answer was the deepest part of me was so
2: relieved. <laughs> I was so relieved.
1: Oh my god. I love tennis. And to this day, I love playing. Mm. But a part of me was really relieved. Also, a part of me didn't really care. Right? The part of me that did care was more worried about what my parents would say. Yeah, Like, oh my God, you idiot. You just ruined <laughs> your college scholarship. You just yeah. ruined everything. But yeah, I was okay with it. Mm-hmm. I was okay with it. Yeah. So after that, that was college for me. So I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. Joined an Asian interest fraternity did frat boy things, got into bodybuilding. Bodybuilding got me into powerlifting. So bodybuilding and powerlifting were my other route for kind of feeling bigger. Feeling, it was you know just the continuation of that kind of inner narrative, inner story, a hero's journey, whatever you want to call it. So, um, and that's kind of like, I guess what I inherited from my dad, if you can do it, get really, really freaking good at it. So I was bodybuilding, and then I was just really angry at myself because I was still really weak compared to everyone else. Like I was like, damn it, I'm trying to build muscle, but I'm so weak compared to my friends. So I was like, what's the easiest solution for that? And powerlifting was the thing. So I went to powerlifting, I fell in love with powerlifting. Um, And I was really good at deadlifting. Like, so I was, I just went head on into powerlifting. And um, this was after I graduated from school. So I was working in finance hated it oh, I can't worst. think of anything worse honestly there's nothing worse. worse there's nothing worse than that and I have an immense amount of respect for anyone that finds joy and fulfillment in doing yeah. that that is just not me
0: I'm the same honestly I'm <laughs> the same. I am just my mind does not work like that like yeah. I, I feel the stress levels rising <laughs> as soon as I look at numbers. I'm like, I know there's something really wrong with me, but I just can't do it. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I think I felt that throughout my life and I've been further and further peeling away from it. And now when I do it, I'm like, I can't, I can't flip and read it. I'm like, what, what, what am I meant to do with this? <laughs> what am I meant to do with it?
1: Yeah. It was um, just, it was like, it wasn't my thing. So I didn't have, I didn't have the motivation to do whatever I need to do. I remember I ended up in sell side commercial real estate and I remember my supervising brokers. I got that job through a friend and so my friend vouched for me. I was awful. I was so awful. He was having me like go through, I don't even know, just I had stacks of properties and I had to input them and get all these information. And I was just like one, I was like, and I was like, oh, "Where do I copy paste all this from?" So <laughs> yeah. I would go online, get the information, copy paste it, and then next thing you know, I got fired.
0: <laughs> but were, before you're I got fired, you probably happy about that as well. Oh, I was really <laughs> happy about
1: that because that was actually when I started getting back into powerlifting. I was getting into bodybuilding and powerlifting, so I was really excited about that. So at the time I got fired, I was actually in control of a bunch of my coworkers' fitness and nutrition. Uh, fitness and nutrition. I was writing their programs. I was spending more time writing their programs than I was doing my actual job. So that's obviously why I got fired. But then that's when I had the idea and I was like, "Okay, I love powerlifting. I love bodybuilding. I know what it's like to train really hard." Right? I might not study hard, but I know for a fact that no one outworks me in the gym. Right? Like that's my element. You can't beat me there. So I was like, I had a fraternity brother who's a really, you know, highly attained personal trainer here in New York City. I spoke to him. He's like, yeah, I'll get you a job at the gym that I work at. And it was at Equinox on 33rd and yeah. Park. So I told my dad, I remember getting off the train, I was like, Dad, I got fired. And he just looks at me, he's what? <laughs> like, and I think I want to be a personal trainer. And he goes, what? <laughs> and then he laughed, he thought it was a joke. So he was like, okay fine, go be a personal trainer. So he thought it was going to be one of those situations where I was going to go in for like two, three weeks and realize it was a stupid idea. He tried to convince me. He was like, what about your financial security? You're not going to make a lot of money. And then he was like, all right, fine. And then here I am now, like many, many, you know, almost, almost 10 years later. And uh, yeah, just about 10 years later. But yeah, so I went to Strongman and powerlifting. And that was where, again, that was really good. And then, you know, with that drive to be better and better I started dipping into steroids so that made me even better as a powerlifter there's gonna be a lot of people who are that might know me that are listening to this and now realizing that during that time of my competition I was juiced to the gills <laughs> good honesty right it's yeah, out <laughs> that's what we like that's what, we're, that's what we're all about here so I got you know it was such an important thing for me to be strong it was another again it was the thing that I was really good at Like, very few people at that time could put more weight on a bar at my body weight and move it.
0: Tell us what the weight was.
1: Uh, My best ever was back in about 2015. I was 190 pounds. I deadlifted 725 pounds, squatted 650 pounds, and bench pressed 365. Yeah, so...
0: We're just gonna talk all podcast now about personal training. And how to get how to get to that weight. Jesus.
1: Yeah. Oh, you get to that weight by being out of your mind. Yeah. Out of your mind. Nowadays it's not very impressive. Nowadays that there there are natural powerlifters half my size that are moving way more weight. But anyways, at the time that was my thing.
0: It's impressive for not in it, I think. Oh, my God, I'm happy when I lift at 25.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah. We, we just got a lot, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, that was that was my life. That became my next obsession. And so right. strongman and powerlifting. I was competing. I was doing really well. I became um, a very successful personal trainer in New York City. Um, and then, I don't know, you know, I don't know really when it really, really began, but then I got injured really badly and had to stop training for... <laughs> Two years. I don't remember it was uh, the last squat session before a big competition of mine. Had sponsors, they're ready to be, they're going to be at the competition expecting me just to scout me out. And my last squat, supposed to be easy. It was 601 pounds. I was supposed to be able to hit that for like sets of six to eight. I only needed to hit one rep. Got into the bottom and then pop, pop, pop. Three pops. And then I just collapsed into the weight. And I didn't feel any pain, right? So I was like, let me try that again, right? So I put the weight back on the bar. <laughs> so
0: obvious to try that again. Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> like, I didn't, you know, I'm not dying. There's no bleeding and no bruising. <laughs> yeah. And my hip kind of feels good now, but it turns out because the, the, the tendon tore. So the tension I was feeling beforehand Don't was need just
0: gone, Donated. Don't need it, get done. rid of yeah, it, you know? Know?
1: <laughs> Went for it again and it finished it, done. And then I was out for two years. And that's, guess, when... Uh, yeah, that's when the next phase of my life began but that was sport for me up till then that was my place of accomplishment that was my niche that's that's where i felt like i was like okay this is where i was meant to be this is where i'm really good and i know i'm really good and i'm better than most people there so i'm safe safe from feeling like uh as worthless as i did inside
0: so when the hit popped how did you feel <laughs> scared
1: yeah I was scared. It was how I should have felt with tennis, Mm. right? Or how you would expect me to feel during tennis. I was like, oh no, my future, Mm. my future with this sport, you know, I felt so good putting in four hour workouts, four to five times a week. And I was like, now I couldn't even sit in a car, right? So how I felt was, I was devastated. I was devastated, especially since the, it wasn't healing it wasn't healing on any reasonable, like, you know, I've had herniated discs, I've, you know, I've sprained each of these ankles in the double digits. And there's always that trajectory you know, it gets worse for a few days and it starts to get better and you're like, okay, I think going to be fine. This just never got better. Yeah, well. Never got better. <laughs> so, yeah, I was devastated.
0: So you, you mentioned that that was your obsession a little bit earlier. Do you feel like you need something to be obsessed over? do
1: like do, i as a i as myself or yeah. people in general feel like, like need to be obsessed you set
0: like yourself like I, I think it's something that i think i think i need a target you know and you, you spoke about your upbringing you spoke about your work that you'd put into the tennis you, you know you were doing 4 hour days on the on the court and then you had this other avenue to go forward with and i'm asking because i'm in a position where i'm working out what's next for myself and i think it's like my mind needs the content or it needs the mission or it needs the input or the journey or the mission to obsess over, you know, to for that to be the... I think uh, as, a, as, a, as a rugby player, I was, it was like all-consuming and the fuel that, that I could put into that backed by similar stuff to, to you where you wanted to feel better, you wanted to feel like you're mastering those nerves that I had before a game when I'm thinking... I'm going to the toilet three or four times cause I'm not nervous I want to play well. I want to do my best and I want to just literally know, d- deliver what I know I can, you know? And it was like a cycle the, the weeks on the weeks and the weeks that, you know, that would come and come and go and I'd have the opportunity to step over the, the, the whitewashing. And I'd, I'd just be on then and I'd feel at times limitless, like you said. So you, you know, you, you've come to this point in, you, in your life where you've had the tennis as a vehicle, you've had the weightlifting, you had the finance, which you struggle to get obsessed over. <laughs> Don't even try. <laughs> it yeah. Just wasn't yeah. Um, and you find the obsession through the training. Like, where did you come to then after your hip had popped? What was that place for you? You know, how did you, how did you navigate that part of your life? And, Did you feel a bit lost in terms of where the direction your mind would go? Yeah,
1: definitely a big part of me felt very lost without that identity. Without that, or without the identity that I assumed en route to the goals that I have. Do I need something to be obsessed over? I think we need to aspire to something. I think we need some kind of very intense aspiration as a source of the energy, motivation, inspiration to find meaning in life. So it's an interesting question. It's coming from spirit It's coming from a, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, you can think of the need to accomplish something, need to be on track, the need to be on en route to something bigger as a, as a rather, as inherently a dualistic way of being in the world. Then there's the world of non-duality, with the world of so-called enlightenment, where you realize that there is no one to be, nothing to do, nothing that has ever or will ever be accomplished in the dualistic sense. There is a reality beyond that also inherently fulfilling and perfect and whole in which this moment as it is, is enough and you don't need to be sweating and bleeding to become someone or to do something. So that's kind of why I kind of like trying to wrap my head around. that's
0: why I wanted to ask you it because I think what we're going to move into now is obviously you spent a lot of time in the physical the tennis player, the weightlifter, the powerlifter, your hip popped. And then you've got to this point where I think we'll, you know, we'll talk about the progression from that, but I'm going to slip a few questions in there for what I've been considering, you know, in this part, point of transition in my life where I have lots of inspirations from how I've lived my life up to date, and then there's lots of inspirations from what you said—the spiritual side of it, the sort of fulfilment way that you look at the world, and then there's the sort of the striving, the achieving, and it's like you know how do you balance these energies? That's that's a, that's one question I wanted to pose to you because we'll talk about your career now as a trainer, um, someone who physically. Will help people train PT, but you're also training people. And is the right word to say training people with meditation? You're teaching them with meditation, and also guiding psychedelic trips. So that balance, out what line do you live on with those balance of so many diverse things? And to get obsessed with something, I get. I guess you you need to get lost a little bit. In something. So, yeah, that, that's the backdrop to it.
1: Oh, I love that question. I love exploring that area, that topic. The, the, a part of me begs to ask the question you know, how do we define obsessed? Mm. How do we define obsessed? If we think of, you know, when I think of obsession, and I think this is kind of in line with most people's idea of obsession is that there is this desperate need to accomplish that thing. Mm. I will not be whole without that. This is my focus. And I think at the root of the word obsession as I know it, is that at the other end of that obsession is my worthiness. Otherwise, how else to the common person, to the average person, how else do we mobilize or even tap into and then mobilize the inspiration in order to accomplish those things. Cause to be obsessed with something, you know, in my mind, what you're really hoping to achieve is something damn near impossible. (laughs) Right. It's intense. It's not like, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm I'm just going to become a good power lifter. It's like, no, I'm going to lift every weight in the room, blood shooting out of my nose, Mm. my bones breaking, that's what I want. I want to be the best at what I do and the only way to accomplish, not the only way, but the, probably the easiest way to accomplish that is to, the only way you can really do it is if you believe at the other end of that path is your, in, your inherent wholeness, your ultimate fulfillment.
0: So what happened then when, when, you, when you had to put down the, the barbell, if you like, and stop training and pursuing that? What was the transition for you there? Oh, it was tough. It was hard. It was
1: so hard. Oh, man. That was really the beginning of my kind of spiritual journey. It's still ongoing to this day. It was really hard. And I was married at the time. Marriage fell apart. I was so lonely. I was so unhappy, so depressed and at the same time had a hyperly, hyper driven ego. Not only was I depressed, I also needed to somehow be the person that was the complete opposite of that. Couldn't let anyone see it. No, Actually, it's not even like even had the option. I didn't see it enough in myself to be able to communicate to anybody. I was just, I was completely lost, so confused. All I knew was achieve, achieve, achieve. So when I, when I stopped being able to achieve anything in lifting i tried to do it through work i tried to do more sessions i tried to make more money i tried to get smarter and I think a whole, all, as all that was happening all this pent up inner turmoil was surfacing growing and surfacing and surfacing and surfacing until it popped ended up me me and my ex-wife we ended up separating right and then i ended up getting into another relationship too quickly so I never had a chance to heal, never had a chance to really process anything, never even had the skills to do so, even if I did have the space to do that. So my life for the next five or six years after that point was uh, tragically difficult. Nearly committed suicide four or five times. I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. That's what led me to psychedelics in the first yeah. place.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you think pushed you to that point? Uh, what, what did that feel like? I just didn't
1: know. All I knew was that there was something horribly wrong. I wasn't feeling good. At the time, I was blaming other people. I was blaming everything else. I just didn't know how to deal with this pain, this sense of loss and grief, a lot of it, I'm sure I inherited from my parents. I was born with this expectation to be someone. And now all the ways in which I felt like I could do that were taken away from me. So I, in some sense, I had all this angst, all this desperation, this uh, this obsession with becoming someone and no way to achieve it. And I think that ultimately amounted to me feeling completely and utterly worthless and incompetent. I was just so, so, so confused. And ending my life was the only way I thought I would be free from that.
0: So you've had those feelings and you've had that sort of that moment where you'd say, you said popped, what was on the other side of that and what made you feel like you <laughs> came away hit from feeling like that?
1: Oh, I remember it was my first LSD trip. <laughs> How did that come about? Right. Uh, well, I started, uh, so I was, I, was, I was deep in my own shit, right? And I don't really even clearly remember, but I was somehow on uh, in investigating solutions for depression. Sales Cyber Mushrooms came up, yeah. right? And I don't know why I had an affinity for it. Like, I never really did drugs. Like, I struggled to smoke weed. Like, only the other thing I did was drink alcohol in, in college. But I'm also alert to alcohol, so I didn't do that very much either. So... <laughs> <laughs> you popped that as well. Right. <laughs> so I was just like, whoa, mushrooms, psychedelics. So I pursued it. And um, I... Searched for months and months trying to get my hands on on magic mushrooms. I ended up getting my hands on magic mushrooms, and the first trip was a complete dud. I ended up taking the equivalent of seven grams of dried mushrooms, which is an astronomical amount to the average person. Nothing. I remember I was sitting in the bathroom of my girlfriend's apartment because she was kind of freaking out. And I was just like, I don't feel anything. And I saw a little tint of green on the wall and I knew the wall wasn't green. I was like, oh, got a little bit of something. But that didn't quench my thirst. I was like, no, 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 I just didn't get it. I didn't get it right. So I ended up getting my hands on more mushrooms and then LSD at the same time. And um, I remember being on the roof of my apartment building. And uh, I had taken just half a tab of LSD and also like maybe two grams of mushrooms. So I took it together and I had an experience. Just to make sure. Yeah, just to make sure. <laughs> and I had an experience. I was feeling amazing. I was looking and the walls were melting. Reality was melting and internally, my construct of self and reality was opening up. And it was, it was brilliant, it was amazing. I went onto the roof and this I considered to be my first awakening. I went onto the roof and I was at the, on the tallest residential building in Bushwick. Brooklyn at the time. So I had a perfect view of the skyline. And I'm looking over at the Empire State Building. And the skyline, the skyline was like a carnival. Lights were flashing and blinking. And I remember the Empire State Building was just a swirl of lights going up into the sky. And I was, oh, this is beautiful. Life is so beautiful. This is incredible. And then I had this very profound experience where I became spontaneously aware that I was perceiving the universe. I became aware that I was aware of life happening. And then in my mind's eye, what ended up happening was from every other sentient being in the area around me, from every window, from every person on the street, I saw a spotlight coming from their eyes, coming from these windows. And it was like a movie projector. So it was projecting something onto this Universe and each person's projection ended up opening up to the enti- my entire visual field. So we were all contributing our own perceptions to the universe. And I had this moment and I'm looking out and I was like, there is no universe out there that is not, that, that is isolated and separate that we're all viewing objectively. We are, every, the universe out there is the amalgam of everyone's subjective experience. Right? So it's because of them that this is here. They're, I'm not looking at something that is that everyone else is looking at. We're all looking at something completely different, and those experiences coming together make the universe. You know, a rather shallow insight at you know in the grand scheme of things. But it was enough for me. Like it just it the, the, what popped was my perception of the world. And now, instead of attaining greatness or attaining achieving more through the lens of the physical body. It was now through perception. It was like, actually, that entire universe where I needed to be the power lifter, I needed to be the rich person, I needed to be the the, the most highly attained person, that's actually only one universe.
0: And there's a, there's infinite possibility out there that I can explore. There's so much more. It makes so much sense though because you're talking about perception, like mental health literally is the only thing that we really have. You know, it's like, it's how we perceive the world, it's how we see it, it's how we register information, it's how we filter information, it's, it's how we decide what we're going to listen to, what we're not going to listen to, what we deem important, what we don't. So we literally do create that universe, or we do map out everything that's going on inside our heads onto whatever <laughs> whatever this is, you know? You know, that, that sort of realisation is is why I I feel so strongly about mental health and also why, I guess, why art is created, why, you know, all these different parts of society are so strong. But you, you could sit down and you could watch a film and there's no way that you can watch that film and be sure that someone next to you has seen the same things that you have, you know, or got the same message. And it's like everyone's just going through this flipping, this... This world, where it's how we, it's what we make of it. So, that was your first sort of realization. Did you have any understanding of spirituality at this point?
1: I had a little bit, you know. Naturally, if you end up in the same area as psychedelics, you also end up in the same area as religion and spirituality. I had a little bit of a, a little bit of an idea of Hinduism, right, and things like that. Um, but I hadn't actively started pursuing it yet. Yeah, I didn't really have any idea. Like, I, 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 it, I was more very scientifically materially minded, very logic-based. So I wasn't really thinking about a god or anything like that. It was just kind of the nature of this reality as I see it, the nature of the universe as I see it, you know, without having to turn to a traditional religious schema in order to make sense of it. So yeah, I didn't really have any, you know, any firm footing in spirituality. Though I probably would have said I did, but in retrospect, I didn't.
0: <laughs> yeah. So like, did you just, you know, f- from from this sort of awakening that you that you mentioned and, and this um, understanding, did you start combining that with the personal training that you do? You know, because as we stand here, now we sit here, now you're a personal trainer. You take people on psychedelic trips and you teach meditation, but you've also gone and done a lot of meditation, work yourself. What was in that decision to go and do that? What, what, what was the impetus for you to do and do that?
1: So for meditation specifically, I came to meditation specifically as a way of being able to explore psychedelics more. That was, I think, my natural, that was my vehicle for being able to go deeper into the psychedelic experience. So psychedelics really came first for me. And everything's branched out of that as far as how that integrated with the rest of my life and my career that didn't really come intentionally until much later maybe in the last couple of years though i would you know was obsessed with it i called it my 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 unintentional and self-proclaimed mushroom internship where when i started working with mushrooms i i tripped every week for a year and a half wow yeah so i've got over 300 trips under my belt and meditation was, my, was the support for that experience. So I learned to meditate, not in the way that I meditate now, but I learned some kind of practice of self-inquiry and self-investigation, internal exploration, some skills for that, in order to navigate my psychedelic experiences more.
0: You've, you've literally switched worlds there then, haven't you? You've literally dived into another, another world. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> here, like for a year, you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I had my reality and my understanding. You went traveling. Yeah, yeah. Totally shattered. Totally shattered. Um, shattered my traditional way of seeing things, of understanding myself. And I've explored a lot of very crazy territory when it comes to the mind, through the help of a lot of psychedelics at first, and then a lot through just straight sober meditation. Yeah, anything you want to talk about there? I could talk about the integration of with my career, but it's not as exciting as the, <laughs> the, the Maverick and the Maverick, my Maverick dive into. Uh,
0: what, what was like the progression there? So, you, you know, you've done it every week. It, it was every week and then
1: do more and more and more. So, I ended up at one point taking close to five tabs of LSD and then another point <sighs> taking 10 grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, man. The stories I could tell you, my friend. <laughs> I end up, you know, I've I've done, I've worked with, to be politically correct, I've worked with most psychedelics. Yeah, I've worked a lot with DMT, with ayahuasca, with the cactus medicines, with mushrooms, with marijuana, obviously, with uh, a lot of those things. So I really. Yeah, that was, that was my trajectory. It's just like more and more mushrooms and then more and more different ways of accessing this psychedelic like space, so different medicines, different yeah.
0: substances, different cultures. So what, you said like you completely shattered your traditional view of the world, right? <laughs> so what did you, doing that much trips, right? You shattered it, but then you, you've done enough to surely wipe it away, you know, like what's 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 left and what is the remnants of this traditional view of oh yeah yeah oh yeah
1: absolutely All right we need to have a view
0: mm. we
1: need to have a view that makes sense with which we can interface and communicate with everyone mm-hmm. yeah you know, it's it, it wasn't it wasn't like oh this is useless let me throw out the window i'm now a lizard right i'm just <laughs> gonna be a lizard right no it was uh there there is you know there is this world that we live in right this human world that we live in and we have physical needs emotional needs we have social needs all these kinds of things and there's still you know that forms largely the backbone i mean along with the constraints of the whatever the physical universe out there tells us in society tells us how we're going to accomplish that and i I, you know i still and Regular ass person with my neuroticisms and all that kind of stuff, but what's different? What's really different and what's my what my belief is and what's absolutely true conceptually? The difference is just not understanding that the vast the way that we are conditioned to see the world is if we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as those before us have seen it, right? And there's a conceptual mapping to it. I do this little exercise with a lot of people that, you know, a lot of my students and a lot of my friends, I just I ask them a simple question, like, what is this? I'm like, oh, it's a cup of water on a table that just made a sound. Like, is it? Is it really that? Where is the cup? Right, you say, it's this thing. No, this is glass. Where's the cup? Well, the glass is the cup. Okay, well, okay, let's just, let's know. okay, this is not a cup. This is glass. Like, but where's the glass? How do you know it's glass? If we all, if we all had the consensus to call this a turtle, it would be a turtle. Right. But where is the glass? Where is the cup? And I'm not necessarily saying that this doesn't exist because it implies that this is inherently a cup. Right. But it's not. It's holding down this thing that we also happen to call a what is it? What do we call this?
0: We say coaster. Coaster. <laughs> yeah. Coaster.
1: It's actually <laughs> coaster. something that we put on a coaster let alone drink a liquid from. No, it's actually something that I might throw across the room if I'm enraged. It could be a weapon, right? It could be a way of seeing the world slightly differently. You know, what's different is just my understanding that this is not a cup, but it makes sense to call it one. It makes sense to describe it conceptually by its function, cup, holding water, because it's easier to drink water from a cup than from my hand.
0: So that makes sense, right? So we, uh, for ease, we call it a coat, we call it a coaster, call it a table. Does that blend into life when we call something a fuck-up or we call something, uh, I don't know, trauma, we call something? um, Anything. Anything. Call it anything. It's not it. Yeah. It's only that from a very particular
1: standpoint. So the only reason why anyone would ever be a fuck-up is if the person who sees them is capable of seeing someone as a fuck-up. That concept has been ingrained for them. But if you've never been told what a fuck-up is, if you've never used those words, if they don't even have the concept in your culture of someone being less, someone being a complete error to society, then the response to that's a fuck-up is what's a fuck-up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's that? What does that mean? So. I try to live more and more from that place to integrate that understanding that this is not a cup, but a cup is what I call it. right? Which then allows us to understand that whatever it is we judge something to be is not inherently it. It is just a representation of what that thing appears to be from this position. Like, I think of the art exhibits where You know, you look at it from the front, you see the image. You look at it from the side, it's just a scramble of junk. You don't see anything. You have to see it from one particular standpoint, and then it all comes together and is this really cohesive piece of art. It's very clear. You step one inch to the right, it is no longer that. That's how life is. So whatever something appears, in my perspective, whatever something appears to be for you, you are not looking at the truth. You are looking at how things are organized from your position, and your position... Is dictated by your conditioning, the way that you have been trained and conditioned to see the world. So these days, you look at someone like, oh, that guy's a fuck up. He's not strong enough. Right? He's not a leader. He's not able to cope with this. You know, he has to cry. He has to have emotions. You know, I look at that person and I don't see that. I see how that other person could see him that way because I see what beliefs they have to hold in order to be able to judge someone that way. I see a person. I see a human being who is, appears to be struggling with whatever's going on. A human being who at their most basic nature only wants a few things, which is to feel connected to the world, to love and be loved to feel secure or to feel safe. Every human being, as far as I'm concerned, first and foremost wants those things. That forms the lens. We don't want to do bad things. We don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to hurt other people. Even when we believe we want to hurt other people, we don't want to hurt other people. Mm. So when I see that situation, I see that person, I see someone who, in their own way, I am getting a snapshot of where they are on their pursuit of loving, being loved, feeling connected, knowing who they are, and feeling safe and secure within themselves. And that's all I know. Any story I can say beyond that, generality, because that's extremely general. You know, when I'm in my clear state, I know, I, I believe that about everyone. Beyond that, I don't know anything.
0: So that's, you, you look, you, you speak to people and you would want to understand where they are within those four paradigms. And then you could map out a certain, I don't want to say a program or regime or, you know, a certain way to work with them. You're just that... saying axis of development or something like mm, that, yeah. 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 Just a quick one, guys. We have had two new counselors join the team here at Mentality. If you are at a stage in life where you are struggling to manage your mind and it keeps affecting your happiness, it is time to do something about it. You can finally allow yourself the time to sit down with one of our Mentality Counsellors who will understand what you are going through, they'll help you understand why you are struggling and they'll give you the tools to get back to being happy and the best that you can be. A lot of the time, we just need to clear up any unwanted thoughts and emotions so that we can show up in life the way that we want to. Mentality counselling is available in Yorkshire, Lancashire and the South East, including London. Sessions can be in person, face-to-face therapy or walking therapy. Alternatively, all counsellors can deliver sessions via Zoom. Go to mentality.co.uk forward slash counseling to start your journey.
2: Um, as you're going through that year and a half of them intense trips, um, how did that influence your relationships? Because relationships are the interesting one because they're active, they're dynamic. You know, you can be going through this journey of having this like dismantling of your own perception and understanding of life existence which is just everything that we ever have but then relationships are a bridge between where you were before and and a relationship for example my relationship with Stevie I have how I view it that relationship also holds how he views it and how it's viewed by the rest of the world as well all at once that relationship kind of encompasses all of that together but when you're going through such a drastic shift in your perception and probably something that i can imagine most people would happen over 10 20 years you kind of had it over a year and a half or even um almost overnight with some kind of trips how did that impact relationships
1: oh man okay it was very difficult because it felt like I was going insane. Mm. I felt like I was going insane. And I, like, I was having all these insights about the universe and about the reality. This is not real. Mm. This is not real. None <laughs> of this is real. Not really knowing what I meant by that either. But the way I saw things was changing so much that I was starting to derive fulfillment and find energy in things that just people didn't even relate to, I had no contact with. Right. So, you know, specifically with my ex-wife, I just started drifting further and further and further away. She was living her life the way she knew how to live her life. And, you know, though she did dive a little bit with psychedelics and into psychedelics with me, not, she never had an affinity for that, that kind of kind of inquiry or experience. She was largely who she was. I was drastically changing. And now all of a sudden, you know, the puzzle pieces that used to fit before stopped fitting the game changed. So it was, you know, everything, like you said, beautifully, everything just got dismantled, right? I didn't, you know, I was, part of me was like, all I wanted to talk about was how the all the things that destabilized people, like you, you think you are who you are, who are you, right? <laughs> who sees from behind your eyes, right? I have seen a world that exists overlaid on this that is nothing like this. Right, this is not really the only thing that's possible. So, how did it affect my relationships? It started to change them drastically, just by nature. Right, you know, the relationship is like a constantly changing thing that is not something necessarily like we initiate. The relationship is what it is. Right, you know, the relationship between me and you exists because you exist and I exist, not because we have decided that there's a relationship. Mm-hmm. So, as I was changing and as my perceptions changing, the relationships were changing. So, my my universe, my world my world view, the people within the world, all of that started to change. But I didn't have the maturity of the insight to recognize that. So something just felt very wrong, right? At the same time, it was so exciting, it was so fun, right? Because I got to, you know, I got to spend four to six hours on a weekend completely by myself, just navigating this insane thing we call reality. Because that was really starting to where I kind of started to kind of open up and flower and blossom. It was like, now I want to talk to other people about it. So I was trying to talk to other people about it. And then just looking at me, as was like, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. So it made relationships very difficult. Yeah, it made relationships really difficult. Because then it started to confuse my relationship with myself, too. So now, what am I?
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you make new relationships? Did, is, that, is that when you turned towards meditation and spending a lot of time in the monasteries because they might have been on that wavelength that you were
1: well no i didn't really and that was the problem like i was still trying to go exist in the life that i came from being a completely different person and even when i did find the relationships with people that were a little bit more resonant with me i was still such an avoidant person i couldn't really be vulnerable with them so it's like where I was was uncomfortable and then where I needed to be was also uncomfortable because it was unfamiliar and it was different and it was asking me to be vulnerable.
0: So when when did you get this urgeance to teach meditation and let other people to explore what you've explored? Hmm. When did
1: that happen? I guess I can say it happened when it happened whenever I found like there was, I found that there was a way to actually bring it in. I became like an uh, like an evangelist meditator. I was just like everyone's. You gotta try it. You gotta meditate, (laughs) man. Like imagine how much better your fitness would be if you meditated. You gotta try it. Everything gets better. Everything is improving. So um, I started just. I I I guess it started to happen because I was talking to clients about it. Right, my clients were really you know very unprofessional and inappropriate. But my you know my my personal life started to blend with my my work my professional life. So I started talking a lot to my clients about all these things, and then at some point down the line, someone wanted to learn how to meditate, and I started, you know, trying to help them. And when it came to offering psychedelic journeys for people, it started, you know, when I, when I started tripping with my ex-wife with my current girlfriend, it started with them. And then start to talk to other people about it. And, you know, I had to develop such an ego around it. I was like, oh, man, I know how to do this. Like, there's a right way to do it, and you're probably not going to find it if you just take mushrooms, right? There's set and setting and all this kind of thing. You have all your affairs in place. So then that's, I guess, where it started. So someone wanted to trip with me, and I was like, okay, let's go through preparation. Let's do it my way. Mm -hmm. And then had some pretty profound experiences with other people, and
0: then it just kind of naturally progressed from there. Was there a point, you, you're obviously still training, um, personal training people physically and in the gym. So was there a large part of that where you felt really inauthentic and faking it? And then did it transition into a place where you were bringing more of your personal into work and were known more for offering this wide variety instead of just the physical, you know, sort of um, upping the weight on the bench press and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get, get leaner and, you know.
1: I think there was a point, well, it, it was authentic up until the point where it wasn't. Mm. So it went from being my authentic way of being in the world. I was very authentic there. That was my pursuit. That was my truth. That was what I wanted for the world and for myself. And then it became inauthentic. Just personal training, just helping people to look better and get stronger. That started to be really uninteresting to me. Right, Because you know, because of my injury, I started diving into very you know, alternate paradigms of thinking about the body. I started studying what's, uh, uh, I guess, a, an institute called Postural Restoration Institute. I met a mentor, a friend that was teaching me and helping me to expand my way of understanding myself because he was the only person, the only, um, a, few, a few of them, they were the only people that were really able to introduce a way to, for me to recover my hip. It went from just straight general for just strength and fitness the way I was doing it to now being peaked, inspired by my injuries to start to look at the body in a different way, which was perfectly coinciding with me looking at the mind and reality in a different way through psychedelics through meditation. And then there was a very distinct point where I wanted so desperately just to be in the meditation spirituality space. I wanted to just be in the psychedelic space. All I ever wanted to do was talk to people about the nature of their minds, about who they are from existential and psychological standpoint, and then how to explore the world through psychedelics. There was a time where all I wanted to do was that, so when I was in the gym, it was like I was good at it, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it made, I made my money doing that, but what I really wanted was to do other stuff. And then there was a point where I realized they're actually not different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's when the integration started to happen, where then I started to recognize for myself, I'm not training bodies. I am helping people to explore themselves in new ways using the physical body as a tool, using the mind as a tool, using uh, entheogenic substances as a tool. Mm. So that's kind of how I see it now.
0: So the, you mentioned a good metaphor earlier where you're looking at a piece of art and when you look at it front on, it looks like a piece of art. It looks like a beautiful bit of imagery. You can see the depth of it and you can see the different things going on uh, you know, and, and the, the, the sort of journey of that art. But when you go to the side of it, it looks like squiggly lines, it looks like a mess. And you almost have such a small snapshot of what that art is. And you can almost look at that, you know, in terms of, of life. There's many times in my life where I've sort of seen it from front on and it looks like a, a beautiful mess. If you like, you know, it looks like what it's meant to look like. And you, you know, if you were the one that that sort of produced this art, it would be beautiful. But then at times I feel like you can fall into that place where you side on again, you know? And I imagine that side on sort of viewpoint, that glance for me feels a bit like that sort of, we're talking about the way that you look at the world, the concepts and, how you're measuring yourself in the world, what you're striving to do. Because at times my life feels messy. You know, at times it feels messy. It feels a bit like I need to be working on something. And then it's like, well, what ultimately is that work for? And it's like, well, I love the process. I love the journey of it. And I love these conversations, which within the whole journey of it. And you talk about the conception, you, you talk about the the sort of ways that you measure yourself and how people look at it, and you can drop back into that side-on view, you know, that sort of snapshot. That's sort of what I picked up from that metaphor. How How do you feel like you live your life now? Do you feel like you have the clear picture a lot of the time, and do you train to keep that clear picture? Or is it something that you feel like you drop back into every now and then and, and and that's that's all part of it wow what a great question i know i mean, I mean it's freestyling you're you know, good, I this. <laughs> good at this I don't know. so clear picture
1: do i see the clear picture not often enough i get in the territory i feel like a lot of the time but that's also constrained by what i believe to be a clear picture is mm-hmm. right and my belief of the clear picture is this seamless formless, beautifully chaotic, constantly changing and permanent process. That is life where nothing is fixed. Anything that seems to be fixed is is, is representative of an illusory point of view, not a non-functional point of view, not a wrong point of view, but just a point of view. It implies that you are here and the world is out there. One thing that's changed a lot for me over a lot of my meditative experience and the and, and, and some of the more profound experiences that I've had is that I've come to recognize one thing for certain that is the most clear to me when I am feeling my best, when my conditions are right, when my mind is quiet, when my heart is full, is that this life is a complete utter mystery. You know, if you were to ask me, I think I'm in pretty good condition right now, how I see the world. The honest thing is, things seem to be happening. I don't know what those things really are. It's hard for me to really kind of know where I end and this begins. But it's not like some like weird psychedelic experience that I'm having all the time. It's just like the world is here and I just don't really know what exactly it is. I'll call it a cup, call that tea, call this recording lies. Natalie, Stevie... Call these things that thing, but not really what it is. So much more. And then when my conditions are not right, because you know you you have to, you know, in 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 the tradition that I'm currently practicing, which is in Rinzai Zen, there's a big emphasis on being able to integrate clearer and clearer seeing. You go into you go into a formal practice as a way, the easiest way of being able to uh, attain the ultimate viewlessness. Right. Yeah. awakening enlightenment satori whatever you want to call it and then you have to you attain that through a, uh, to, through a condition called samadhi which is an absorption and then you integrate that absorbed state with everything
0: can you explain those stages samadhi and, and enlightenment what, what you deem them to be
1: samadhi as i've learned it is a, a state of complete absorption in the way most people will think about the think of it as a state of concentration, very high concentration. But um, the teacher that I have, that I have draw a lot of my current you know, uh, views from sees problem with viewing it as focus or concentration, because it's inherently dualistic. instead it's an absorption. It's a becoming. It's a, it's a state in which the boundaries of here and there have melted away. Where the subject and object have now become one. Right. So it's in, in that state, in that condition, you have the highest probability to see things as they really are, which is an enlightenment experience, according to Zen texts, Zen Buddhism, as I my limited understanding of it. So and therefore enlightenment is the seeing of one's true nature. The seeing of the truth beyond all appearances. When a famous Zen master Dogen Zenji said, "You know, the body and mind fall away, right? where the world dies, and what's true remains." And that is my conception of enlightenment, and but that can be uh, there. There are grades of enlightenment to some degree. I mean, you can kind of get a glimpse of your the the nature of things. And then you can have a very deep and clear seeing of, of, of things as they really are in such a way that starts to actually drastically change your, as we'll just say, that in the words of Shinzen Young, who's another meditation teacher, there's a figure ground reversal in your understanding of the truth. Right? So it's not like I'm Elish trying to be, you know, I'm Elish trying to see the formless world. Instead, Elish is a product of the formless world, the formless world, the formlessness, the the... the the oneness, the now-ness of everything, the thisness of everything is first and foremost elush secondary. So samadhi is that state of absorption that we try to attain in meditation, in zen meditation. You become absorbed into your practice so much to the point where you fall away. And whatever it is you're doing falls away. And what's left is the struggle with using language. What's left is the universe experiencing itself experience experiencing
0: itself without the layers of the concepts that you're talking about without the layers of everyday programming and thinking and all of that stuff that falls away
1: that as your primary way of seeing the world falls away because there's a there's this there's a buddhist sutra called the heart sutra in which it says emptiness is form and form is emptiness emptiness is the true nature of things right and then form is the amalgamation of is, is the thingness of things. Form is what something we is an appearance is what we, we call it, right? Cup is a form, but the true reality of the cup is formless. Mm. Right? So you see through the conceptions. You see the conceptions are not other than that which they are con- what it that which they are conceiving, right? That which they are representing. So the symbol, we'll just say the concept is the symbol, is not other than that which it symbolizes. Right? So it's not that con- concepts now just disappear. do The concepts are no longer a real things. You recognize, you see the true nature that one, concepts are a thing, but they do not exist on their own. Right? They're not real through and through. They don't have an independent existence. So it's the seeing through of conception, the state of perfect conception samadhi and clarity is a state of minimal or maybe we could even say zero conceptual holding but in reality how it's exercised in reality is to recognize that when concepts do arise what they naturally do because of the mind from which they come from we recognize that the concept is not true
0: so what sort of like problems do people come to you with and how do you see the change or the transformation when you work with these these people. Pain. Mm.
1: The, these days, more kind of psychological or existential pain. But in general, pain of many. Existential sorts. meaning pain in their understanding of who they are. But the, the the suffering of not knowing who you are. So we can say more spiritual pain. Like existential, spiritual, and maybe interchangeable. In, is, in that that context up, is that
0: coming Is that coming up against? trying things and trying things and trying things and realizing that it's not the answer in terms of maybe achieving and you know like what how how do these people what does that what's the output of not knowing who you are
1: so those people are generally already on a spiritual path when they come to me with that question so they've been meditating they have their own kind of practice and they are looking for looking to go deeper and so then i and I help them to whatever degree I can, to kind of figure out where their path they are and where they might, where they might be tripping up. Mm. Right. No pun intended. But <laughs> yeah. where they might be, Definitely yeah. yeah, where they might, where where their way of seeing and understanding themselves could be preventing them from seeing something further, seeing something bigger, which obviously means I have to you know, somehow make a judgment about whether or not they see things clearly or not, which is yeah. tough, but. So those, are the, those people that are suffering from that kind of pain that are coming to me specifically for that are generally already rather seasoned meditators and practitioners of spirituality or whatnot. Mm-hmm. The other people are always referrals from my previous clients that suffered from some kind of chronic or terminal illness or otherwise physical pain. Right? So people are generally come to me for pain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then how I help them just completely depends on where they are not everyone meditates not everyone's i don't push anyone to see the world in a way too drastic from their own seeing mm-hmm. right you know because from my standpoint you know going the path that i went is not necessary
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? i aspire for enlightenment but no one else needs to
0: is that is that your mission now not mission but aspiration i would say
1: so and probably because to
0: me, enlightenment
1: represents the liberation of all suffering and then the ultimate way through which I can then help others to be liberated from their suffering. Mm-hmm. Right, so I guess you could say that's my goal. My goal is to, at this moment, my goal is really to end my suffering, whether I call that enlightenment mm. But yeah, because you know, I spoke a little bit about it, just dealing with chronic illness for the last almost a year. Yeah getting to points of where I just don't know what's going on. And a lot of people don't know what's going on. Mm. Like for me, like I finally gotten to a point where at times I can really sit down and like I don't know. I don't know what I want other than to stop suffering. And I don't care what it's going to take. I don't care if I have to sit on a cushion for six hours a day. I don't care if I have to, Freaking drink chicken broth for the next year. I don't care if I, how, I don't care how much I have to suffer if it means I won't suffer anymore.
0: Are you alluding to your chronic illness that you've had specifically or also mental suffering as well?
1: All of it. So there is also, for me, there is, you know, I I think right now the chronic illness is really giving me motivation, right? This, this very non linear and rather treacherous suffering that I've been going through um, is giving me a lot of motivation to continue on my already rather deeply ingrained spiritual path. So that existential angst I have to really know who I am is now being bolstered by the chronic illness. So they're kind of motivating
0: and fueling each other. And how do normal goals look like for you? Do you set normal goals?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not very good at it. Like (laughs) I said, I don't really fit into the traditional mold. So goal setting is something I know I need to get better at. Mm. The goals that I do tend to set are very lofty. Mm. Right. But fortunately, I'm crazy enough to actually, like, maybe just throw caution to the wind and go for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, if
0: you set the direction, you'd be going that way.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Right. Like for me, you know, the goals that I set are not as actionable as i think they could be Mm. i think that's uh you know that's a science in and of itself i need to really kind of come face to face with is that a lot of my own personal limitations right now have to do with the way that i see the future and the way i construct the future for myself so when it comes to goal setting i have the bigger goals that i want that's nailed down pat probably not going to change
0: what what, and what are those
1: to be as to be happy beyond conditions to enjoy the life that I have no matter what's happening and to support anyone that I can with their own lives. Mm. That's my basic drive. That's what I want is, all I want is to be deeply happy beyond conditions and to be of service to the world. That's it, to have, and of course, having all the beautiful things that come with it, Mm. to have beautiful, deep relationships, to be able to be vulnerable with the world and be a beacon for vulnerability. And to be someone that you know, I, I I use this image in my head all the time, is I want to be, I want to be the umbrella in the storm for people to hide under when they don't have anything. That's kind of the image that I have for myself. I want to work on myself so that I have, I can support that. I can hold the umbrella up to the rain. And those who need it can come under, and we can, you know, we can have a good time.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> before you time. go back on your
1: path and you go on your own journey. Right. Let's let's have a that's let's, let's have a good time. Let's at least feel safe together, for yeah. at least one
0: moment before you go. Yeah, love that. I mean, they're good goals. They uh, they seem like big missions, mate. They seem like big missions, but worthy missions as well. One hundred percent. We've gone a good amount of time on this podcast. Um, I've enjoyed it, and I've probably gone. Really deep, being selfishly, just asking you the deep questions, being selfish to get some understanding on that. Thinking about other people and wondering if you yourself would want to do it, but wondering about a five, six, seven minute meditation. Yeah. To knock it to, to finish in style. Sure. Well, what, uh, is there any kind of thing
1: you wanted to put in the spotlight with meditation? Anything you wanted
0: to gear towards for the podcast? there mm. got to be a theme, aren't there, from this podcast? I think the mission that you set there in terms of helping people not to suffer is a good one. I don't know whether that leads us into a loving kindness or hm mm. Elish twist of one of them.
1: I don't even think I would go loving kindness right away. Mm. So for me, I think the first thing or forget about you know timelines and stuff like that or arbitrary um, hierarchies. But one thing that we absolutely need at some point in order to, I believe, realize truth to whatever degree we need it to suffer less based upon our conditions is the capacity to simply stop and pause and to be with things as they simply are and not necessarily have to solve the problem we, we can't get stuck in the state of problem solving. We have to first be able to be in the situation so that we can understand what problem it is that needs to be solved in the first place mm-hmm. and have a place where we can then question our beliefs about what the problem is so that we can continuously refine and also have an opportunity to recognize that maybe there isn't really a problem. And it starts with pausing and stopping. Right. So just experiencing are. so I'd be more than happy. I'm to, good for that yeah, I'm good for that to offer that. So if you're sitting, if you're sitting and listening to this podcast, I encourage you to get a nice comfortable position. If you're driving, drive. If you're doing anything else, just bring your attention to whatever it is that you're doing. I want you to take a deep breath in. Let that breath go. And feel the sensations of your body. Feel the experience of sitting, of doing whatever it is that you're doing before you turn to thought to know it. what is happening right now if we don't believe any labels or any stories our mind creates about what's happening. Noticing the state of your body. Is it in a state that you would call restless? Are you at ease? Are you in pain? Are you feeling good? Is your breath slow and deep?
0: Or fast and shallow?
1: Where are you now? If you surrender the attempt to control what's going on? and What is going on if you don't need it to be any particular way? become aware of your breathing. You can be aware of it at the nostrils or in the chest or in the belly. We're all three. Bring your attention to the expansion of the inhale and the release of the exhale. Paying attention to each breath from beginning to end and letting everything else that's happening to do so in the background. Each time your mind wanders, that's okay. Just as the sun shines and birds chirp, the mind wanders. It's not a problem. Notice it
2: and then come back to the breath.
1: When unpleasantness arises, let it arise. Breathe with it. Don't try to push it away. Don't try to understand it. No need to protect yourself by putting it in a box. Let it become part of the breath. And if you feel pleasant Don't hold on to it. Try to see that just as the breath comes and goes, so does everything else. And in this practice, we are trying to simply let life arise and pass in its most natural way. Nothing but the breath. Nothing but continual allowing. Allowing for things to be challenging. Allowing yourself to suffer, to struggle, and also to enjoy to be grateful. Whatever is here, breathe with it. No preferences. let the world happen in the breath. As you inhale, the world is contained in the inhale. And As you exhale, the world contained in the exhale. So attend to the breath as it is the world. So ordinary the feeling body hearing seeing and yet at the same time a complete and utter mystery. What is
0: this? Okay.
1: So they come back to
0: Run that at start. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how attentive I would have been, but no, that was that um, was really nice. You know, the, the the experience of that then was back is aching, seriously aching. It's like a sauna in here now because you turned the aircon off. So there was fluctuations of, of feeling that, and I think my mind wanders quite a lot. I'd love to know, in comparison, how much it wanders to other people's you know you know whether that's the knocks to the head that I've just lived with all my life in terms of concentration and attention you only know your own experience don't you but yeah that was lovely that was lovely Mm -hmm. and um, I feel a sense of that calm again that we found in Times Square uh, the other <laughs> month. You sound like just <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all it takes. You know, I don't know even know how long that was—seven minutes, eight minutes. But yeah. you know, when
2: you've had a massage and
0: they ask you, like, how do you feel? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. You just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, it's just life's all right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, thank you, mate. We should have done the the outro before that, but I've enjoyed a free flowing, inquisitive, unstructured, meaningful conversation. You know, you're someone that I truly do feel is on that mission in terms of you've had that quest to eradicate your own suffering and and plunge into that curiosity that you had. And you found yourself in a place where you are serving now. And I think that's going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And I think, you know, when we're thinking about worthwhile achievements and um, things to strive for, I think that's you know, that's a big one, and I feel like you are doing it, so very much appreciate you stopping by and spending you know, almost two hours with us when I know your time is precious, and you'd much rather be on top of a skyscraper on acid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, this is, this is more beautiful than any psychedelic trip ever could Yes, This, to me, right now, is the most important thing.
0: Where can people find you, mate? If they if they're listening in the UK, we've got a few listeners in Australia, few in America, and, and Ireland, and wondering where, if you know, they want to jump into some sessions, whether it's meditation, whether it's PT, you know, whatever that is. Where can they find you? Um, Instagram will probably be the best place. so
1: and add Intuitive Strength and. Uh... Yeah, you can find all my information there.
0: Awesome. We'll put all of that in the social media release and um, in the show notes too. Thank you, sir. It's good shit. It's good shit. Thank you, mate. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Boom. Boom.